Uh, Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is in the New Testament, so it'll be in the right half of your Bible. Uh, If you uh, are new to reading the Bible, if you have a Bible with you, uh, that's awesome. The book of Acts is right after the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus and his uh, life and ministry. And then it, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And if you get to Acts, then that's where we're going to be. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 and chapter 19 this morning. The book of Acts tells the story of after Jesus rose from the dead, uh, he instructed his followers. He commissioned them to go and share the gospel with the world. He ascended into heaven. And now this is the story of the church exploding, the gospel going global. So that's where we are. We've been working through it for quite some time. uh, But it's, it's a joy to come to it again. If you don't have a Bible, too, let me know. I would love to get you a Bible. Uh, Even though we throw the the Bible words up on the screen, it's good. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to bring it. There's nothing like having a Bible on your lap and uh, just soaking in the word in front of you. So if you need a Bible, we would love to give you one. As you're turning there or as you're pulling out your Bibles, I want you to think of a time where you had bad information and you had to face the consequences of that bad information. Think of that time. There's bad information, and now there's consequences of that bad information. There's sometimes, though, where the, the, the bad information is your fault, right? The error was yours. I don't know, the kids. How many Lego fans here? Any Lego people? Yes. Yeah, not just the kids. All right, let's, yeah, Lego fans. I am a Lego fan. So kids or parents of kids or big kids, uh, this will make sense to you. Have you ever... Uh, grabbed a piece that was six pieces long and uh, it should have been eight pieces long and you put it in it worked but then all of a sudden five pages later in the instructions all of a sudden no man you needed that other piece anyone can relate you know gold and yellow look a lot alike on the leg okay you're familiar with maybe an error that you caused that has there's fallout because of it you got to backtrack maybe the parents you can relate if you've ever assembled ikea furniture and you grabbed the uh bolt that's labeled A2 when you should have grabbed A1, and maybe A1 worked, but again, you've got the entire bookshelf assembled, and then all of a sudden you're looking for this A2 bolt. Anyone? Okay, this is really from experience here. So these are, these are things that we cause that cause us problems, but sometimes in life, you'll get bad information, something that the error wasn't your fault, but now you are facing the consequences. Another firefighting story, as I often do, one time we had a call and we got the address, jumped in the truck, we drove to the call, everything was running smoothly. Uh, we jump out, there's the house, we run up to the house, and it was, uh, okay, we got to get in there. You know, bang on the door, open up, fire department, walk in, and all of a sudden this guy's just sitting there eating his lunch. And he's wondering why there's three firefighters standing in his front hall. And uh, it turns out, uh, through the game of telephone that is calling 911 to the dispatcher to us, Somewhere along the chain, the address was uh, misspoken, the house number. And so all of a sudden, we were in somebody's house that didn't know why we were there. He was actually really, he was like, come on in, yeah, this is great. Like, yeah, I get you guys a coffee? And we were like, no, we gotta gotta go. And so, uh, but that was an example of bad information that really we had no control over. And all of a sudden, we were in someone's house that we shouldn't have been. And there was someone with an emergency that we weren't there. Now, it turns out everything worked out fine. The person who gave the address gave the wrong house number. Uh, We ended up being able to play a reverse game of telephone, find out the address. It was just down the road. We ended up at the right place, and all was good. There's a happy ending to the story. But as an example of how quickly things can go bad when you have bad information, bad information. 
And the same thing can happen to the church, and the same thing can happen to you as a Christian in your own life if you're working with bad information. You're really handcuffed. There's nothing you can do. You go to the wrong address when you have bad information. And so this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about what we're going to call sound doctrine. All right, you can see the title of the sermon is Sound Doctrine, a map for the mission. A map for the mission. Now, what are we talking about when we're saying sound doctrine? Now, when we say sound, I don't mean like there's sound. We can hear sound. But sound being like solid. This is a sound stage. Okay? Sound. So a solid bit of what's doctrine. Doctrine is instruction or teaching. Right? And so we could define sound doctrine maybe very broadly as, as right instruction, the right information, the right address, the right Lego piece, the right bolt. Okay, sound doctrine. We can think of the word orthodox. Orthodox. We're familiar with that word, orthodox. Ortho, meaning right, and doxa, meaning belief. Right belief, right instruction, sound doctrine. And so right teaching is just like having the right address. And that gets us to our big idea this morning. Our big idea is this. Sound doctrine directs the mission. Throughout the whole book of Acts, and as Pastor Bob from Grandview preached last week about the mission of the church, we're going to look at sound doctrine through this lens. Sound doctrine directing the mission. Sound doctrine directing the mission of the church. Now doctrine itself is is not in and of itself the silver bullet or the magic wand that we wave sound doctrine over something and all of our problems go away. But it is the map that points us uh, to what is true. It's the map that points us to God's word and it is the map that is actually informed by God's word. So a map that points us to God's word, a map that is informed by God's word. Bobby Jameson in his book, appropriately titled sound doctrine he says this he defines sound doctrine as sound doctrine is a summary of the bible's teaching that is both faithful to the bible and useful for life faithful to the bible and useful for life doctrine should not consist of imposing our ideas on the bible sound doctrine should not consist of imposing our ideas on the bible So we know what we're talking about when we're saying sound doctrine. Yes, sound doctrine, right instruction from God's word. Now what about the mission? What about the mission? When we're saying our big idea is sound doctrine directs the mission, what are we talking about? Well, it's what we've been looking at, as I said, through the book of Acts. It's it's Jesus' commission to his followers to go and make disciples, to baptize, to teach. And so if you're wondering how sound doctrine and mission work together. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning, how sound doctrine directs the mission of the church. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. You picked a wonderful morning. I know I say that every time, but you did pick a really good morning. We're glad that you're here. I'm thankful that you're exploring these things. I hope that you walk away having a clear picture of what we mean by sound doctrine, to be anchored in truth. I hope you walk away with a clear picture of the mission of the church. What is the purpose? What are we working towards here? And I hope you can walk away and honestly be able to even ask yourself the question, am I even going to the right address? Am I even going to the right address? Now through our passage, we're going to see a number of geographical landmarks. We're going to see a lot of 
things that kind of move through pretty quick in only a few verses. But you can know that Paul's journey through this, this is, we just finished Paul's second missionary journey last week. There's no major pivot here that Luke, the author of Acts, gives us. But this is the beginning in verse 23 of chapter 18. This is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And through the passage we're just going to read this morning, Paul travels over 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. Quite a bit of time is covered too. So in chapter 18, verse 23, it says this. After spending some time there, that being Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so we get kind of an ambiguous amount of time there that says some time, some time. Uh, we also get more clear pictures. Uh, again, this is the third missionary journey. Uh, we see that Ephesus is the home base for this missionary journey. And a total of about three years Paul spends in Ephesus. And we see the fruit of that three years spent. If you look at the very last verse, we'll look at the bookends here. We look at the first verse and the last verse of our passage, which is chapter 19, verses 10. It says, this continued, we'll see what this is, uh, for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is, that is some serious fruit. That is a, the byproduct of this missionary journey from a couple of years spent, thousands of miles covered, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we got some geography, we got some time, and now we get to the what. What was Paul doing? And what was the church doing? Well, they were preaching. There was evangelism. They were sharing the gospel. There was discipling. They were encouraging those and teaching those that they've already shared the gospel with. There was church planting. But more than that, the fruit came not from human work, but from God's work. Paul gives an example uh, later in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Uh, an example of how this, the, the power distribution goes in the mission of the church. It says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Now we're going to explore more. We're going to be introduced to Apollos in our passage today. But that's an example of the work that we do is important. Paul planted, Apollos watered, this figurative growth, this explosion of the church. But it was God who actually gave the growth. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the mission of the church. There's planting, there's watering, and there's God-given growth. And how does sound doctrine connect to this? We're going to explore that this morning. But this right teaching directs the planting, the watering, and the mission of the church. And so we're going to look at this in a few categories. The need for sound doctrine in evangelism and discipling. So let's start with discipling. That's our first point this morning. The need for sound doctrine in discipling. As we looked at in verse 23... We see Paul is driven by his love for the churches. He goes from place to place, region to region, city to city, church to church, and he strengthens the churches. All you have to do is keep on flipping through the rest of the New Testament, uh, many of which, most of which, are letters, the epistles that Paul wrote to these churches. And we can see his burden to love them, his burden to see them grow in their understanding of sound doctrine, in their understanding of the truths about God. 
And so this, this love, this is the heart of discipling. Now, what are we talking about when we're talking about discipling? Well, a disciple is a follower. A disciple is an apprentice. And so if you're a Christian, Christian, Christ follower, you are a disciple. You must follow Christ. And so we've, we've got that out of the way. Now, what does it mean about to be a disciple maker? When we talk about discipling, we are disciples of Christ, but we are also called to be a disciple maker. We are called to teach. We are called to uh, be motivated by that love to see others grow, to live our lives uh, loving one another, encouraging one another, doing one another spiritual good. That's what I mean by discipling. So we see Paul strengthened all the disciples. He went from city to city, region to region, church to church, strengthening the churches. Right? Evangelism, yes. We've seen him going through, and we're going to see more evangelism. But it doesn't stop there. We can't just, you know, lob out a message and run away. That's not the way of, of what it means to disciple one another. It's an ongoing thing, encouraging, strengthening. So we're going to be introduced to a guy named Apollos. Apollos. And so let's read together chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So who's this Apollos guy? We get introduced to Apollos. Well, we learn a number of things. We see he's from Alexandria, Egypt. It's the intellectual center of Egypt. A world-renowned library. Uh, years earlier, it was the Alexandrian community that, that wrote the Greek version of the New Testament, the Septuagint. We see he's eloquent. He's eloquent. What does that mean? Well, uh, especially then, but, but all the time, this idea of rhetoric, uh, speaking with an aim to persuade. It appears that he was very good at rhetoric. He was an eloquent speaker. We see he's competent. We see he's educated, again, from this uh, intellectual hub. So he's smart, and he's a smooth talker. Yeah, he's a good up-and-comer. Another important observation is that it appears that Apollos is a Christian. This is important as we compare the story of Apollos to what we're going to see come next, the next kind of scene. We'll get there in a second, but let's stick with Apollos. But we see him competent in the scriptures. We see him instructed in the way of the Lord. The Greek, uh, in verse 25, says he was fervent in the spirit. Not just in spirit, in the spirit. That is what made him able to competently teach about Jesus, to teach things rightly. His spirit-enabled understanding of Jesus allowed him to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now that said, he had some missing puzzle pieces, right? He, he only knew of the baptism of John. Now we don't know how deep this lack of understanding went, whether this was a complete ignorance to the difference between uh, John's baptism of repentance or the new covenant baptism of the Holy Spirit, or whether it was maybe just in practice. Maybe he didn't have an understanding of the practice of baptism that was established by Jesus. Either way, whatever his blind spot was, there was a blind spot. And so Priscilla and Aquila, 
They pull him aside to teach him doctrine. Priscilla and Aquila, right, the tent-making power couple with rhyming names to match, they pull him aside to teach him doctrine. There's a few important observations we can make from this passage. We can see this wasn't a public rebuke. We can see they demonstrated humility and compassion for this young up-and-comer, smart guy, good speaker, really educated. But they pulled him aside privately, and they, they encouraged him. I had this experience, not about doctrine, but this very morning, uh, Janice over here, we were assembling some carts uh, that you'll see around. There's a cart right over there. That's one of them. We were assembling these carts, new carts, you know, new cart day. It's a good day at HGC. And we were putting these carts together. She was doing one. I was doing the other. And when I had it done, I was really like hammering it home. The end, you really had to give her with the mallet. And so I was putting it together, and she, she could have said nothing, but she came over and said, Aaron, I think you put the top on backward, like wrong. There was, on all of them, it said bottom, middle, top for the shelves, and, and it had a sticker saying which way it should face. And so I kind of jokingly said, ha, I peeled off the sticker and stuck it on the other side. But then she said, oh, I think it's there for a reason. And, and then I had to instruct, I was, not, I was not doing what Apollos did. I was not super gracious with this critique of my cart building. But, but she knew there's a reason why there's a sticker there. And it is true, there's a lip on one side so that things wouldn't roll off the cart. And that way they're all on the right side. There's a reason for it. And so it was just a good example of she could have just let it go. Uh, but she pulled me aside and she said, Aaron, I, I think you have it wrong. And that's Okay. Let's figure it out. And we took it apart. We put it back together. Both carts are killer now. But it was a good example of that pulling somebody aside when maybe it'd be easier to just let it go, but there was a reason. Now, Apollos demonstrated something what appears to be better than me. He was teachable. He likely had more education, more experience than both of them in his understanding of, or what he thought was his understanding of God's word. But it's a good reminder that we're never beyond further instruction from God's word. We're never beyond that. We don't graduate in some way. We cannot uh, be so prideful in our knowledge and understanding, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how many degrees you have, we are never beyond instruction from God's word. No matter how many carts you built or think you've built, you always need to be humble enough to, to get that criticism. I say criticism. Janice, it wasn't a criticism. It was a, it was a good... Uh, yeah, it was, it was great. It was a perfect, uh, perfect timing this morning. Now, we see it's graceful, but it's also driven by conviction, right? Priscilla and Aquila knew this is important. We're talking about something important. This is, this is baptism. And so they didn't let the deficiency go. They didn't let the top shelf of the cart be backwards. They were gentle, but they were firm in their correction. It's also a good reminder not to be argumentative or come to these situations with a critical heart but from a humble heart from a humble heart and from an open bible second timothy 2 24 and 25 says this and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness it's a good reminder for all of us i think and we see the fruit of this interaction. Apollos gets educated. He gets, he, he gets learned from Priscilla and Aquila. And this discipling cycle continues. He is corrected in this discipling relationship in sound doctrine, the need for sound doctrine in discipling. 
And now he's armed with the right teaching, and he heads to Corinth. He goes to Corinth. Let's continue reading chapter 18, verses 27 and 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that is Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So again, this discipling cycle continues. The same pattern that was modeled by Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos adopts. He goes to Corinth, and in verse 27, right? When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed. Right? So he interacted with the Christians there, and he helped them. That's discipling. And that's, that's the beauty of discipling relationships, that discipling cycle. Verse, 20, uh, verse 28, we see a pivot, right? We see that discipling relationship, and all of a sudden we see this, this pivot. And that gets us to our second point, the need for sound doctrine, not just in discipling, but the need for sound doctrine in evangelism. The need for sound doctrine in evangelism. It says, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures the Christ was Jesus. Apollos was informed by sound doctrine, and he goes and he, he refutes the Jews. He, he points to Jesus. He evangelizes. He shares the gospel with them. He is an eloquent, educated, word-driven, uh, rightly sound-doctrinized evangelist now. Uh, next, we see uh, another pivot. We see a bit of an exchange, the, the Paul and Apollo switcheroo. They kind of trade cities. We don't know the timelines of how this all went down, but they trade cities. And we see, again, Paul reinforce the need for sound doctrine in evangelism. So let's continue reading chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what, were you, uh, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, we see this, our second point, the need for sound doctrine in evangelism. In a way, these Ephesians, they, they kind of resemble the situation that happened with Priscilla and Aquila and uh, Apollos. But the differences are significant. Apollos, as we saw, he taught accurately about Jesus. These guys in Ephesus, they seem to be almost frozen in time. They seem to be almost frozen in time. Their lack of understanding uh, created this gap between their understanding and an understanding of Jesus' work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In 1945, Japanese Lieutenant Hiru Unoda was one of only three soldiers that survived a U.S. invasion on the island of uh, Lubang in the Philippines. One of only three that survived or didn't get away. And they, they hunkered down. And Hiro Unoda, he was determined to fulfill his orders to defend the island until his dying breath. He got orders, 
Fan Lu Bang Island. That's, that's what you're doing here. And he said, all right. Now, what happened next? The war ended shortly after that invasion on that island. But he ignored reports of the war ending. I mean, he was hunkering down in the jungle with his three buddies who eventually either were captured or died. But he was hunkered down in this island in the Philippines, and he either didn't receive or he ignored, thinking it was propaganda that, that the war was ending. And so it wasn't until 1974, 29 years after the war ended, that he was finally reached by his commanding officer, and he was told to stand down where he surrendered his sword uh, to the government in the Philippines. He was frozen in time. He fought a war that ended 30 years before with the local police, local citizens, because he had missed or ignored critical information, critical information that would have brought him into the present. He was living in the past. His lack of understanding, his lack of sound doctrine, really, had him frozen in time. And these Ephesians are kind of in a similar spot. They're frozen in time. They're waiting for a savior. They were baptized into the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance, and they were looking forward to the one that John proclaimed was coming. They were looking forward to a savior, to their Messiah. But little did they know the new age had come in Jesus, and the blessing of that new age had come in the gift of the Holy Spirit. But they were stuck in time, just like Lieutenant Inoda. So Paul corrects them. He gives them the right address. He gives them, you know, their marching orders. He gives them sound doctrine. He gives them Christ. He points to Jesus. This isn't uh, harsh. This is the most loving thing he could do. Right? This isn't, uh, you do you or live your truth. No, he's saying, these are the facts. You need this truth. You need to hear about Jesus. Again, that's the most loving thing he could do. And so it's such a good reminder that we need sound doctrine to direct us in our evangelism. We need sound doctrine. We can't just soft pedal or sugarcoat. We need to, to be anchored in the truth. And we see how they respond to that. They become Christians. They are baptized into the name of Jesus. They experience and they symbolize in their baptism their union with him and union with his people. Symbolically dying to themselves and rising again in new life with Christ. And the evidence is similar here as we've seen a few times in Acts. The evidence, uh, the visible and audible evidence of them speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is another time, again, through the book of Acts, where we have to ask the questions, okay, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? And we see that it's not a consistent pattern through Acts. It's not prescriptive, but it is descriptive. And it was really important in this moment. They were in a really unique time, a really unique time, the early years of the church, and they were frozen in time. They were living religious lives. Luke calls them disciples. They were disciples of John. And so their lives looked religious, but they were missing something critical. They were missing Christ. And so these visible and audible signs were really important in this moment. And so Paul continues on. He shares the gospel. They're baptized. Praise the Lord. 
And he continues on with this mission to continue bringing sound doctrine fueled by the Holy Spirit. Let's read the rest of the passage. Chapter 19, 8 through 10. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul continues on. He lasts a little bit longer than he did in Thessalonica. He only lasted three weeks there. Here he lasts three months. But the same pattern happens. Some accept, some reject. And so he's chased out of the synagogues. But he continues on in this lecture hall of Tyrannus. I told a couple kids, they were telling me about the, their favorite dinosaur was a T-Rex or Tyrannosaurus rex last week. I said, you wait. We're talking about Tyrannus next week. It's much less cool. It's a lecture hall named after a guy named Tyrannus. It's not quite as cool as a dinosaur. But for those that I said to listen in when I say Tyrannus, that was your moment. But we see, uh, and based on uh, history, even from outside of the Bible, it appears that that, that was Paul's daily routine. Uh, between the time, uh, the time of 11 o'clock a.m. and 4 o'clock p.m. That was his time slot. And he would lecture in the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, that was the heat of the day. That wasn't prime time. A lot of people would be having their siesta. But he made it his mission to get a platform to share the gospel, to point people to Christ, to share sound doctrine, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to boldly proclaim this message. So it's a good reminder for us. What are those platforms that we have? Who are the... Uh, the people God has placed in our lives, that we can take sound doctrine, direct uh, our mission to evangelism. Just like Paul, for years, reasoned with people. And again, the fruit, it's what we looked at right at the beginning. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's the fruit of evangelism. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. That everybody heard. Wouldn't that be amazing if after a few years... We could say something similar, that all the residents of Kitchener-Waterloo heard the word of the Lord. That seems like a bold claim, but let's, let's at least work towards it. Because remember, we can uh, plant and water directed by sound doctrine, but it's God who gives the growth. So let's make that our mission. So that leaves us here with now what? What does this mean for us today? I have a question I want to pose for you as we consider what it would mean for all the residents of Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, Guelph Township to hear the word of the Lord is what is fueling the mission? See, sound doctrine is directing the mission, but what is fueling the mission? Is it programs? Is it numbers? Is it just a desire to, for some reason, go against the grain? Uh, is it a desire to be right when others are wrong? What is the lifeblood of this church? Now again, sound doctrine is simply information. You can have the right teaching. You can have sound doctrine about how to tie your shoes. So in, in and of itself is not the power. Look back to the very beginning, our very first sermon in Acts, Acts 1, chapter 8. Jesus did not say... Uh, but you will receive power when you really lock down your statement of faith. 
Now, that doesn't mean a statement of faith is not important. But what does he say? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is what needs to fuel our mission. This is the same truth today as it was for the Jews in Acts 2 at Pentecost, as it was for the Samaritans in Acts 8, as it was for the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11, as it was for Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and these dozen Ephesians. The Holy Spirit needs to fuel the mission. And so don't walk out of here this morning frozen in time, unable to answer the question, what is fueling the mission? Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning, and this is new to you. Maybe you've been a professing Christian your whole life. Maybe your life looks religious in practice, but you know there's something missing. You know that you're dead inside. And so I would encourage you to do the same as Paul encourages them to do. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And when I say that, I don't mean that's a a cold theory or a distant doctrine, but Jesus, the Son of God, the only one who could live a sinless life, the only one who never deserved any punishment, the one who agonized in the garden, the one who was abandoned by his friends, by his followers, by his family. Look to Jesus who was spat on, who was mocked for you. Look to Jesus whose body was broken for you. Look to Jesus whose back was torn open by whips, whose back carried the cross, his own torturous death device. The back that now sticky with blood laid on a splintery cross and willingly laid there while he was pinned there with metal spikes by the hands of Roman soldiers. More than the physical suffering, that's the same back that bore the weight of every sin you have and will ever commit. That's the same back that laid on a cold slab, but on the third day, His heart began to beat. That sin-destroying blood started pumping through his veins. Neurons started firing in his brain. Look to that Jesus. That Jesus who is alive today. Jesus who couldn't even be defeated by death. And who effectively became sin for us. Look to Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. And that's not a distance thing. His heart is for you. His heart is for you. He can sympathize with you in your weakness. And he says, when you're weary, when you're carrying a burden that you can't carry, come to me. Come to me. See, I can't carry this burden anymore. He says, give it to me. Put it on my back. My back that was torn open. My back that laid against the cross. My back that can carry your sin. I can carry your burden. I always have and I always will. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about sound doctrine. Don't disconnect sound doctrine from the truths of God's word. 
from the truths about Jesus Christ. This is not textbook memorization. That sound doctrine matters. We need the right map. We need the properly dispatched address. We need our marching orders. So sound doctrine, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is reforming and reviving fuel. And I want to close with a quote by Francis Schaeffer. He says this. Reformation is a return to the sound doctrine of the Bible. Revival is the practice of that sound doctrine under the power of the Holy Spirit. Reformation is a return to that sound doctrine of the Bible. Revival is the practice of that sound doctrine under the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, our Father and King, we come to you needing your help. God, I pray that you would help us in our understanding of the right teaching of sound doctrine, that it would direct our mission, that it would uh, direct us in our discipling, that it would direct us in our evangelism, and that no matter where we are, Lord, that we would all be able to come and answer that question, what is fueling the mission? Are we even on the mission? So God, I pray by your help that we would uh, be empowered by your spirit to disciple, to share the gospel, to take it to the ends of the earth, directed by that sound doctrine, but empowered by your spirit. And God, for those that are here that have never heard of your glorious gospel, the good news of your son paying the penalty for our sins, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would cause growth, that, that we can only plant in water, but God, we need you to open up hearts. And for those that have lived their whole lives, but know that there's a peace missing, God, I pray that, that you would work in their hearts, that they would too look to Jesus, that, that they would no longer be frozen in time, but that they would have an interaction with you, that they would have an interaction with your son. And God, as we come to share in the Lord's Supper, that we would reflect on that incredible gift of your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.